When I was studying and preparing for this message, I, I ran across a particular statement that I think summarizes 1 John chapter 2 and really the entire matter of assurance, and it's this, that victory in Christ is assured. That's why you have the book of Revelation in the Bible. And yet, resistance is required. That's the essence of the Christian life right there. There's two things that you've had to work through this week. Specifically as it relates to assurance, there are two things that needed to be a part of how you've walked through the last seven days. Belief and battle. By belief, I mean to have a mindset that's reflective of what the Bible tells us that is true about you, about the finished work of Jesus and what you believe about that. If you believe that the Bible says who you are and you believe about yourself, what the Bible says is indeed true. So that's belief. And then there's this battle piece where not only do we have to believe, but we have to do battle against the remaining presence of sin in our lives and around us. It's not just that we know that we've been forgiven, we need to live like we're forgiven. So there's a belief component, there's a battle component. So before we even get into the message today, let me ask you, as you think about the last six days, where did you have to spend more time struggling in? Was it in thinking the right thoughts about who you are, or was it in battling against temptations coming your direction? As you think about the last week and the ways in which that you were far from perfect or less than perfect, was it in regards to how you thought about yourself, or was it in regards to the battles that you succumbed to? I don't know where God finds you today, but can I just assure you and remind you that there's freedom and grace available to you today? And if there's any sense of conviction as you think about your last week or regret, you need to know, friend, that's a gift. And God, by his word today, wants not only to restore and renew you, but wants to set you on a new path. Today the title is, Be Sure That You Don't Love the Wrong Things. And after looking at a number of themes in 1 John, including how to have eternal life, how to know that you spiritually belong, how to receive forgiveness through confession, considering if your belief really works, today our attention is turned to the environment in which we live. So last week we looked particularly at this idea of knowing if our belief works or not, figuring out if what we believe actually is lived. Today this text is about the way in which God places us in an environment in the world that is not safe spiritually. And yet it's not bad, but it's not safe. So victory is assured through Christ, but resistance is required. Our text today has essentially two parts. First is a command, and then there's four reasons. That's a very simple outline. That's what we're gonna use as our framework, a command, and then four reasons that you should obey that command. Here's the first command. It is simply this. Do not love the world. Verse 15 states it very clearly in 1 John chapter two. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The nature of the language as it's structured here means that you are to continually practice this. 
It's not just that you make one single decision and then everything's fine, but it means that on a regular basis, think of it as the word posture. Your, your posture towards the environment in which you live, if you're a follower of Jesus, means that you are to not love the world. What does that mean, the world? How do we not love the world? Are we supposed to love the world? Doesn't the Bible say God so loved the world? True at one level, yes. What the Bible means is, first and foremost, an awareness, just a, an awakefulness of realizing where you are and what that means. Spiritual confidence comes from understanding the spiritual landscape and realizing how potentially dangerous the territory is in which we live. Like most words in the Bible, the word world has a pretty wide range of meaning. It can mean the material world. It can mean the universe that God created. It can mean the realm in which humanity lives. But in this particular use, the word points towards the entire system that characterizes our human existence. So when John says the world, he is particularly mindful of the brokenness of humanity and the environment around us that is just on a footing that's hostile to God. John uses the word world to describe what is opposed to God's commands and what is resisting God's heart. Go to 1 John chapter five. The problem with the world is, according to the Bible, that it's controlled in its system by the devil. Jesus says that the devil was the ruler of this world, and in 1 John five nineteen, it shows us the contrast. He says, we know we are from God, and then he says this, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the idea is that there's something fundamentally wrong with the world in which we live. As beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is, as much as a gift as the world is, there's something wrong with it. And then go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, where John talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. He says, First John 4, 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the idea is there's this, this opposition to God, and that is just baked into the fabric of the world in which we live. So in this respect, although the Bible says God loves the world, and although we're to love people who are in the world, the Bible says that the world in this way, is really bad. There's this anti-God mindset that is propagated and lived out in the world. Think of it this way. The world is the sandbox in which evil plays. And followers of Jesus need to be reminded that this is the environment that God sends us into. And just to be aware of that. Because one of the most dangerous things is just not being aware of what the world is. I remember when teaching my sons how to drive, I gave each of them a speech when I handed them the keys. And I said to them, I want you to know that what I'm giving to you is the thing 
if you use it improperly, could result in the death of another human being. And you just need to be aware, like this car is a wonderful tool, but is also potentially dangerous. And I wanted them to feel the weight of that. So John wants us to feel the weight of the world and its system. The, The mission of believers is to be sent out into the world. God loves the world. He gave his only son for the world. God's posture towards the world is love and compassion and redemption. But it is all of that because of God's brokenheartedness and his grief because of ungodliness and brokenness that is in the world. And so we we come today and we worship together after for the last six days experiencing the highs and lows of a terribly broken world, both externally and internally. So John cautions us, do not love the world. Now, I also want to acknowledge that there needs to be balance here because sometimes Christians have taken that don't love the world and they've way overreacted. Some people use this command to think that if you ever enjoy anything in life, that you're, you should feel guilty about it. If you woke up this morning and you were excited that the sun was out and there was no snow on the ground, and you were like, yes, you ought to be yes. Not like, ah, oh, I shouldn't be so happy about this. It's kind of worldly. No, be happy. There's no snow. Or move north, you know, whatever you want. But be happy. You enjoy a nice meal, let's say you want a nice steak and you, you're with your family and you're out at Ponderosa and you're getting a meal and <laughs> you're enjoying the finest cut of meat at Ponderosa, put that bad boy in your mouth and you're like, mm, 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 this chopped steak is awesome. You know, I not feel guilty about that. It only costs you $7, so it's fine. If you have a friends and you have them over tonight watching the Pacers crush the Cavaliers, then you, uh, you know, have, a, have joy in that friendship that you have together and not feel guilty about anything in that respect. If you go off on vacation and you're enjoying the beautiful scenery, not feel guilty about that. See, what's happened is that sometimes we, we just get the wrong mindset. We don't know how to use the world. We don't know how to live in the world And yet John says we're to not love the world. So there there needs to be an appropriate balance of what this command is saying. And with that comes a great degree of caution. John says do not love the world, and he says don't love the things in the world. One of the reasons I think he does this, to talk about things, is he wants to move it from sort of this philosophical category to more specificity, because here's the deal. Our love for the world surfaces in how we deal with the things of the world. Our world is filled with really good things, but our posture, if you're a follower of Jesus, needs to be one of understanding that good things can become God things, and we need to be careful about that. The difference is that something can be nice, and then it becomes a necessity. It's the difference between something that's enjoyable between something that becomes an idol. It's the difference between when you lose something that you're sad versus losing something and you fall into despair because you don't have it. John says at the end of this letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And what he's concerned about is that our love for the world can surface in subtle forms of idolatry. Let me give you an illustration. 
Let's just take the category of career. And you can put really anything in this, but let's just take career. The world, as a system, is filled with opportunities to work. Work is good. And, and part of that world system involves hierarchies and promotions. And along with those promotions and those moves often come particular benefits of more authority and more money and more esteem. And this hierarchical system is not fundamentally sinful or bad, but it has brokenness built into it. You see, you could want the promotion not so you could be a good steward of your gifts, but because you want the esteem of others and because of all the trappings that come along with the promotion. You could seek the next job not because you want to be somebody who's more effective, but rather because you want to have this sense of accomplishment. You, you could seek the next job because you look at your friends and you don't understand, how can they afford that house or how can they afford that particular car? And so you want the job because of what it provides. As you talk about that job opportunity, you could position yourself in meetings or in projects at the detriment of others. You could hoard information that others need or talk poorly about them. You could exaggerate your accomplishments on your resume, convincing yourself that you're just putting your best foot forward. And if you get the job, you could be filled with pride and self-congratulation. If you don't get the job, you could be filled with bitterness and despair. The problem is not the job. The problem isn't even the system, although the system has brokenness built into it. The problem is that our love of what that system can bring creates within us wrong desires, wrong affections. And the problem is, is the very thing that should mark our relationship with God, we've tried to give to something else. We let those emotions that should have been attached to God are suddenly attached to some other thing, and that thing cannot hold the weight of our identity. So the issue isn't the job. And put anything you want in that line, um, whether it's um, a house, having children, marriage, technology, fame, sex, athletics, working out, clean eating, video games, movies, financial planning, I could go on and on and on. Those things give us something and we have to be careful because our love of what those things give us can suddenly take the place that only God was meant to occupy. So we're to be aware, we're to be balanced, we're to be careful. An important aspect of this spiritual assurance is knowing how to relate to the world in which we live. And John's caution is one that we need to heed. Don't love the world or the things in the world. That's where he starts, then he gives four reasons. What follows here in this text after verse 15 are four reasons that he gives to those who might say, oh yeah, I agree with that. They might give tacit agreement. Yeah, I know, I'm not supposed to love the world. So he wants to deepen this a little bit to help us understand, no, no, really, here's why. Reason number one, he says that competing affections don't work. Verse 15 says this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John draws a really clear line, which is helpful because Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter five. He says you can't love two masters. Paul says nearly the identical thing in regards to the flesh and the spirit, that they're in conflict with one another. And the point from Paul and Jesus and John is simply that loving God means loving him above everything else. So love for the world and love for God, they can't exist together. We have to choose. 
Friend, for, 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 friends, for some of you, this is why spiritually you're faltering. It explains why for some of you, you may, may be even doubting why or if you are a Christian. And here's why. It's because your love of the world your love of the world system, your love of what the world offers you, your love of what the world asks for you, your love of what the world promises to give you is sucking the spiritual life right out of you. It, it doesn't even happen by design on your part. It's just by neglect over a period of time, by just following along like everybody else, you begin to think, well, everybody else thinks way and everybody else loves these things, so I'm gonna start loving these things. And before you know it, you've bought into the mindset of the world and it's begun to cause your spiritual life to flag. Why? Because at the end of the day, those things don't hold weight and you can't love the world and love God. James goes so far in James chapter four and verse four to call this spiritual adultery. He says friendship with the world is enmity with God. So that describes you, I have really good news for you. If you even realize that and you're like, you know what, that's actually true. That's a sign of God's grace. And confession means that you can acknowledge that to God, which he already knows to be true, and you can return back to your relationship with Christ and have your spiritual life begin to soar again. And it may be that you've just gotten into a pattern of starting to act like, think like, believe like, embrace like everything else that everybody else is doing, and you've begun to wonder, how come my soul is starting to get smaller? The reason is because you've started to love the world. It's so easy. On the positive side, so that's the negative side, on the positive side, it means this, that when we affirm that we love God more than all other things, when we embrace the words from Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Then when that happens, your spiritual life begins to soar. We hear the words of Jesus when the disciples departed a number of them left, and Jesus said to Peter, do you want to go away as well? And Peter said this, listen to his words. This is like when Peter nailed it. There's times people didn't, Peter didn't nail it. This is like Peter, mic drop moment right here. He said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have belief, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, that's so beautifully clear. And some of you, you need to be reminded of that today. Where, where are you going to go? Competing affections don't work. Being a follower of Jesus means that the directional affection of your heart has been settled and you affirm it by not loving the world or the things in the world. So friend, be careful. It's not that the world is bad, but it means that brokenness is built in and it can grab a hold of your soul. Secondly, John tells us here that unholy desires lead you the wrong way. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, eye, of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now what John does here, it's like he gives us glasses through which we can see our lives. And he gives us three categories of what wrong actions are like and where they come from. He says desires of the flesh. This is the first category. This is just basically the, the, the fundamental 
broken longings within the heart of every human being. This is the expression of our fallen natures. It's that by our very nature, we desire the wrong things. And the danger is then to have those wrong desires become so normalized by virtue of the culture around you that you forget how wrong they are. Become so normal because everybody thinks like this, everybody talks like this, everybody looks at this, everybody walks like this, everybody acts like this. You begin to think this is what is normal. And the Bible says don't love the world. The Bible says the desires of the flesh is not, they're not from the Father, but from the world. Oh, these sneaky desires that come up so quickly. This is the way that it helps us to be able to process the things in life that happen. The desires of the, of the eyes. Here's the, the next thing. John says that these desires of the flesh are facilitated by the things that we look at. The things that we look at. And we want because we see them. So that the eyes then become the portal for desires of the flesh. And what we see then becomes fodder for wrong actions. Now, of course he has in mind sexual desire. But he means all kinds of desire. That the eyes of our hearts become the means by which the desires of the flesh are facilitated. And all week long, just think of how many things you were assaulted with in terms of what you saw. I mean, could it happen yesterday that your neighbor opened up his garage door, he drove out this beautiful red zero turn lawnmower, and you were like, whoa. <laughs> and you were like, that's a legit mower. And you're thinking like, you know? And you got inside the house, you sitting down on your couch, and then advertisement comes along, and you know, it looks like the world is perfect when you have a zero-turn lawnmower. There's no dandelions, you look wealthy, you look tan, you're buff. I mean, it's just like, if you had this, and you begin to think, how can I get a zero-turn lawnmower? And you begin to think about it, think about it, then everywhere you look, suddenly you see them all over the place. You're like, John and Susie have a zero-turn lawnmower. You start thinking and thinking and thinking. It comes all over the place. That's just one thing. So zero turn lawnmower. Oh, here's another one. You stood in front of your wardrobe this morning. And you were just picking out what you were going to wear. And for some of you, it was simple as, well, this, is, this clothing looked nice on me. It's warm outside or not warm outside, so I'm going to wear. Others of you stood in front of your wardrobe, and these were the thoughts that you had. I want to look hot today at church. I want to look young. I want to look hipster, even though I'm 48. I am... Um, I want to look like I'm wealthy. I want to, and those were the, if you're honest, those are the thoughts that ran through your head. And where does that come from? The Bible says, desires of the flesh, desire of the eyes. Then you come to church, you see what somebody else has on, you're like, oh, I need one of those. I need that jacket. I need that pair of pants. I need that. I need that. And you begin to compare. Or maybe last week you were at an awards ceremony for your kids at school. You know, your neighbor's kids got up and they got the Academic Kid of the Year Award. Like, he's stellar going places. And your kid got the, hey, we're glad you showed up this year award. <laughs> and you got in the car, you closed the door, and you're like, we're stupid parents. We're losers. And you're looking at your kids in the back seat going, if you, could, you, know, if you would just be a little, and then we could probably feel better about ourselves. You start projecting that on there. Some of you are at a soccer game on Saturday, and you're yelling, you're cheering as you call it, to try and get your kids to do better because you're convinced you got to have a D1 player. And the pride of life is surfacing. 
You could sit in a lawn chair with a winter coat on yesterday and the pride of life is just coming out all over the place. And if you're not careful, if that's the way everybody else acts, you'll begin to think, this is the way you act. And the Bible comes through and says, no. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. John calls us to not love the world. Nothing wrong with soccer, nothing wrong with clothes, nothing wrong with zero-turn lawn mowers, nothing wrong with no dandelions in your yard, unless those become the objects by which you find your identity. Unless those things become the thing that you put your weight in and say, this is what defines me. Unless you're putting on those clothes and looking in the mirror and it becomes a worship moment. Unless you're riding on that zero-turn lawnmower and you think, I've arrived. Or your kid gets the academic award and you're like, nailed it. Academically oriented kids, broke the cycle, we're there. John reminds us, friends, that those kind of desires are not from the Father. They're from the world. You laugh because you know how true it is. So true. Third, humanity is broken and getting worse. John reminds us that the world, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. The idea of this is this, that the, the, loving the world is a bad bet. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know the trajectory. You know where things are going. It'd be so foolish, like, like buying stock in a company that's already declared itself bankrupt. Or purchasing a home that's just been declared condemned. Or adopting a dog from your friends. Or like, well, it has rabies and it's, uh, you know, it bites people, but it's cute. And you're like, yeah, we'll take it. Come on. Bad idea. Follower of Jesus. Know where wrong desires lead. We know the costs associated with the death of Jesus. We read the stories in the Bible of people who make tragic decisions. We know, we know, we know, we know. But do we? Because all week long you've been assaulted with statements like you need this you deserve this everyone's doing this you'll be happy if you do this and the fact of the matter is it's a scam it's a house of cards and the fact of the matter is we can become so enculturated in the world that we forget where all of this is headed i read an illustration this week of just the strange things that we will watch on a video screen or a movie that in another context, we would go, this is so stupid, what am I doing here? And the person gave this illustration. Imagine you're walking through a park and suddenly you see a, a guy and a girl on a park bench and they're like going after it, like making out. And imagine what would happen if you were like, hey, I'm gonna call my friend, hey, there's this couple, they're making out on this park bench, grab a couple chairs and uh, why don't you come and meet me? And then you take your chairs and you set up and they're like making out right in front of you and you set up and you're like, huh. Ah. And imagine them looking at you and they're like, yeah, we do this all the time so people can come and watch us. Have a seat, come on. And then your friend comes and then 15 of you come and you just sit there and watch this couple go after it. You'd be like, that's so weird. And yet we'll do that in front of a screen and pay money to do it. And, and we'll think, well, yeah, it's all right. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to movies. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch television. But what I'm just saying is that if we're not careful, we can get so enculturated to the decadence of our culture that we've begun to forget. This is wrong. There were real people behind a camera doing this and now we're watching and paying money for it. And it just becomes part of the environment of the world. So humanity is broken and it's getting worse. And finally, 
Obedience confirms your future. John says this, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The final reason that he gives here is both a warning and an affirmation. It's a warning in the sense that if you believe in Jesus, you need to behave like Jesus. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect. I'm not calling you to some sort of sinless perfectionism. Not at all. If you fail, there's mercy available to you. What John is arguing for, what I'm trying to suggest, is that we just need to be awakened. Words are confirmed by our works. And in this text, it sounds like whoever does the will of God abides forever. So a Christian is a person whose will has been captivated by God's grace. It means that the orientation of your heart has been redirected. And that also means, and I want to say this gently but lovingly, clearly, brother or sister, if you don't live for the will of God, you are not a child of God. I feel like I come because I just like to hear things about heaven and forgiveness. And then you leave and it never connects to doing the will of God. You, you, you're not a believer. No matter what decision you made, no matter how much you profess, you, John says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, not perfectly, but it means that the orientation of your heart has been settled a particular direction. And if, as I say that, something within you says, oh, God, help me to will more of you in my life, you ought to be thankful that God, by his grace, still moves in your spirit and in your soul. When, when your heart is set to do the will of God, you are working the miracle. You're affirming God's kind grace in you. So living for the will of God doesn't create grace in you, doesn't create Christianity in you, but it does reassure you that the genuineness of what you believe has landed on your heart. Every time you squelch the desires of the flesh, every time you redirect the desires of your eyes, every time you treasure Christ over yourself, here's what you do. You verify that you're legit. That grace has invaded your heart. That victory of, in Christ is indeed in, assured and that resistance is required. Let me offer one application, just one. First, if you're an unbeliever, here's the application for you. If you're not yet a Christian, so glad you're here. Here's, here's my call to you, and that is that I want to invite you to end your weary pursuit of putting your worth in all the wrong things, and I want you to come to Jesus today. Why not turn and become a follower of Jesus and let the grace of Christ wash over all of the things that you've done wrong and make you a new believer, a new person, a believer today. For those of you who are Christians, here's, here's the one thing I'm asking you to think about. I'm gonna call it the first John audit. During second service today, we're gonna, we'll be doing with our children a, a fire drill. You won't hear it, it's happening already now, just to practice to be sure that we know how to safely handle children if there's ever a fire. Every year financially we do an audit here at the church and it's important to do and we're glad to do it. Here's what I want you to do in your life. I want you this week to do a first John audit. By that, I want you to think of maybe an area or two in your life that has started to trend worldly. 
And I want you to think about what it would look like to take a step back from where you're starting to head. Maybe to turn something off, maybe to stop a direction you were headed, and to replace it with something that adds spiritual value in your life. Maybe it's how you spend money. Maybe it's uh, what you choose for entertainment. Maybe it relates to substances that you consume. Maybe it's your choice in clothing. Maybe a purchase that you're considering. Maybe aspirations that you have. Maybe how much value you place on your children's behavior. Maybe how badly you want to get married. Maybe how you handle sexual desire. Maybe what you think about in general. And I just want you to think, what would it look like just to go, okay, wait a minute. I've allowed too much time and too much of the world to sort of influence how I'm thinking. As a staff, we're doing this. I've asked for a a First John audit in light of just a number of pretty high-profile evangelicalism moral failings. I just want to ask the question, are we good? We got travel policies in place and meeting policies in place where we need to, technology stuff's all good. Are we good? Because... We tend to leak, everything leaks over time, and so we're just taking as a staff, take a step back and go, you know what, let's have every area of this ministry just take a look and say, are we doing what we should be doing? Because the reality is we want to love the world like God wants us to love the world so that we don't love the world like God doesn't want us to love the world. We want to be sent out into the world, and we want to be sure that our hearts aren't captivated by the world. Because victory is assured But resistance, oh, resistance is absolutely required. So where does God find you today? On the scale of loving the world in the wrong way that John describes, are you loving the right things? Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us grace to respond to whatever area of step back or transformation that you want us to embrace today. We pray that you would help us to treasure Christ as greater than other things that have really assaulted us in the last week. Thank you that there is forgiveness and grace available. Thank you that you're not asking us to be perfect. You're asking us to be aware and to be careful So give us grace so we can follow you. Thank you that everything we have is only because of the beautiful outpouring of help from Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.